This is John Stepling, and this is uh, Aesthetic Resistance Podcast number <laughs> 68. It loaded too slowly there. Okay, and with me, Varun Mathur um, in Delhi. Hi, Varun. Hi, John. Uh, Corey Morningstar in Toronto. Hey. Good morning, everyone. Hiroyuki Hamada in Long Island. Hi, John. Rob Snyder in the south of Sweden. Hi. And Johan Edebo in the north of Sweden. Good afternoon. Okay. Um, <clears throat> it's actually been three weeks, I think, almost exactly since um, since we did one of these. That seems to be the the uh, the time lapse, and a few things have. Um, have happened certainly uh and i don't even know where to begin i think that i will just say this that it seems as if there are multiple overlapping but multiple uh, uh sort of propaganda projects or policy projects being uh implemented simultaneous i mean we have monkeypox which just cracks me. I mean, zero global deaths. <laughs> How can you have no deaths and have an emergency? But, uh, you know, what do I know? I'm not a doctor. Um, you also have uh, this, this, the climate uh, discourse is being pushed very heavily. And we had sort of predicted that there is suddenly all this fear mongering about um, about the earth burning and extreme heat uh and then of course ukraine and uh nato continue to be a story which has multiple aspects to it uh and and then you have the kind of the return of the the eugenics people this time uh, and this is the Great Reset and, and green capitalism and all that, in the, the demonizing of eating meat and the pushing of insect food and so forth. Although I have to say, I've not seen insects for sale at the local market yet. Um, and people seem to be buying plenty of meat. But uh, that's, I saw that Jane Goodall, the former Baroness, whatever her name is, uh, suggested the earth would be much better off if 90% of the people were removed. I find it odd that that she can say something like that and people seem not to be horrified. I mean, that's a pretty extreme statement. Uh, I, I, I'm guessing she doesn't count herself in that 90%, but I could be wrong. So that those are those are these kind of related topics that that uh, are in play. So I, I leave it to whoever wants to talk here to talk. Well, people are not horrified about that statement because it's she's speaking of the other, right? Mm -hmm. And so yeah. people intuitively, you know, understand that doesn't mean them. That means brown or black people. <laughs> And, you know, and, that, and that's exactly what it is. And when you talk, when people talk, even people I know, when they talk about that, they talk about Africa, right? They right. don't talk about here. I mean, having one child here is like having 
you know, 50 children, 100 children in parts of Africa. And so it's that whole othering thing happening again. Mm. Yeah, it's always Africa. When you hear those <clears throat> those comments, it is it is always Africa. And of course, with Jane Goodall, it is specifically Africa. Mm. But it but it always is. It always is. Um, anyone else, Johan? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll go ahead. I, I think I told you a few weeks back that I, I have this old friend who's he's about thirty five, and he laments his unironically laments his advanced age wishing he was like 20 years younger so he could have the energy to get out and meet people and you know do meaningful things but when i argue then that you know maybe it's it's not the onset of old age here that's the problem but maybe it's like issues of lifestyle and diet and priorities and and maybe it's the unnecessary medications you're on you know that that just gets rebuffed because <clears throat> there's nothing anyone can do about their health because everything is determined by genes which are just randomly programmed to, to give some people stroke or cancer because uh, i mean i guess we're just evolved to be randomly unfit and, and the, the diets sold to us by by corporations they're perfectly sound and you know scientifically balanced and and i think you know this, to some extent, it also includes these utopian ideas that science and technology pretty soon will be able to augment and renew our bodies to perfect condition and so on. And, and it kind of, I think this is basically the sort of thumbnail representation of people's general unreflected perspective on, uh, you know, mankind, society and history. And I think basically two things stand out in this perspective. There's this lack of trust in, in the body's innate capacity for, for health and flourishing. And there's the idea that our nature is some sort of capricious enemy that's out to get us, yet which can possibly be subdued and tamed by science and capital. So there's this othering of nature without and within, to which also the 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 untamed African primitive continent is, is uh, of course, associated. So, so there's there's an othering of nature without and within. And this also connects to, you know, the, the, the othering of the unconscious, as you spoke of earlier, John. Yeah, well, <clears throat> you know, when you hear when you hear discussions about the, the, the fact that one is still hearing discussions in some quarters about overpopulation, even though the problem is actually uh, uh, underpopulation, demographic collapse. Uh, but when you hear that, and and I saw an article, I saw an article in the BBC that was advocating for insect food. Eating grasshoppers uh, is actually less harmful to the planet than eating cattle. But apparently both are harmful because apparently all life is harmful to the planet. This is yeah. a strange fetishizing of, of nature or the planet or however one wants to talk about it, that all life is, is somehow a force of destruction. And in if you follow the logic of this, of course, the you know the 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 outcome is is humanity ceases to exist and and then the planet will be happy apparently i don't know uh people are being separated from the concept of nature and and it's very odd varun i know wrote a a, a thing on 
social media that actually I'm quoting in the blog, as a matter of fact, uh, the, about this because it's it's uh, not just counterfactual. It's a it's strangely nihilistic, and and I feel like uh, that aspect goes uh, unremarked upon. But Varun, I was just going to say the what. This idea of uh, overpopulation, I think it begs repeating, you know, I think I've said it before, but if if I do travel by road, whether it's one of the most populous countries in India, if I do travel by road, I just see empty fields and forests everywhere. It's not like every inch of the planet is uh, taken over by people. But the point is that there has been a deliberate attempt to kind of stockpile people into cities where then you have this kind of... Uh, inducing this kind of thinking that Johan was telling us about, about the entire dependence of the internal and the external on the establishment, mm -hmm. where then the, the human will is entirely incapacitated. Now everything is going to be guided by the establishment in its entirety. So you don't have a mind to think. You will be told that the world is overpopulated and you will believe it. And you will be completely dependent on the pharma cartels for your health and you you don't have a direct connection to yourself or to nature in that sense. So it's a bit. Yeah, yeah, Johan. Yeah, I, I agree because if you ask the question, I mean, Jane Goodall would probably come up as one of the archetypal people trying to f protect nature or at least in our cultural view of things, she's one of the, yeah, the, the, the people that are standing out as guardians of, of nature. But, but what kind of, what, what's the nature that she wants to protect? I mean, it's this fetishized vision. It's, it's this curated, colonized and, and augmented vision of nature within a framework of technological progress and you know, artificial control. And I think this, this idea, this fetishization of nature is in some sense uh, the core pillar of our contemporary mythology, the, this, uh, this fear of nature, this subjugation of nature without and within. But that's maybe, yeah. But no, but I think, <clears throat> go ahead, Varun, go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, also, I think um, nature as dangerous has been an yeah. old kind of thinking, right? Like that, that the natural living systems are dangerous because I think that's the survival mechanism that has survived and it has become supremely neurotic now yeah. to the point where it's now that everything has to be neutralized. I don't want to face a threat from anything ever again kind of thinking right? so <laughs> so it's it's this that i mean nature is not entirely friendly i mean you if you go and live in a forest for a week that's not going to be very pleasant if you don't really know your way around there are yeah. dangerous things in the wild you know like so that just how do you balance that as an individual or as a group or a community how do you balance that out with living with nature is a very different mechanism than completely culling it and controlling it i think um, Corey? Mm, I have sort of a short like story um, about Jane Goodall. My One of my daughters used to have a Roots and Shoots group when she was very little. And so she used to, um, she's, she opened up a couple of conferences with um, high level conferences with Jane Goodall. She would go and do a little speech and introduce her. Anyway, one year she was um, nominated and to represent Canada as I, um, I, I don't know what they were called at the time, some sort of ambassador for Canada. So we went to Connecticut for this weekend with Jane Goodall in the Roots and Shoots 
groups and all these um, children who were ambassadors from actually all over the world. And that was before, that was when I was more, you know, um, sort of at the beginning of my involvement, working with NGOs before I started writing about the whole system. And even then it was shocking. Um, I mean, one of the tours was a visit to a nuclear plant. Another tour was a visit to um, like some sort of a marine entertainment park. Like it was completely fucked. And I, I can't believe it that all this stuff was being introduced to children as these great things. And so when I came back, I wrote a letter to the Institute. And then, um, you know, at that time they were, you know, expressed dismay and sort of said, oh, we're not participating in this anymore. It was the United Nations. And so I didn't really give it any more thought, you know, I just thought, oh, the Roots and Shoots, you know, Jane Goodall, you know, thank God I told them about this, they'll be, you know, disgusted, and they were, and um, anyway, after that, she went on to endorse all kinds of crazy shit, instead, including the, um, what is it, the fourth industrial revolution that, um, that launched at the Davos, right, like she works really closely with Salesforce and Mark Benioff. Anyway, I just wanted to interject there that this stuff's, this stuff's been going on forever, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and like Brian said too, like this whole disconnect from nature, I see that more and more. I mean, just the fact that when I talk in my neighborhood to people on the street and not about trees and, and what's happening to nature and everything else, you know, you're almost like um, a nutcase now if you express you know, any, if you talk about nature, even you're so, sort of, you know, considered crazy or something's wrong with you, like it's something you shouldn't even talk about, right. you know, it's, it's normal to destroy nature and just right. to destroy our environment. And if you don't think it's normal, you're some sort of traitor. <clears throat> well, I think it's interesting that <clears throat> the, there has been this shift where, uh, <clears throat> hungry people, starving nations, famine, Yemen, Ethiopia, and so is there, there has been a shift in, in people's perception. I mean, those poor people are now kind of being blamed for being hungry. Um, it's the useless eater mem, you know, um, again, running beneath all of this is this is this white supremacism the 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 inherent racism in all of these people good all in the world wildlife fund and and all of it um but but it's just interesting that that feeding the hungry is not the priority now it's decreasing hunger by I don't know, giving them insects or something to eat. It isn't, it, it, there has been a whole set of, of, of sort of thought mechanisms involved that, that has ended up kind of blaming the poor. I mean, that's always been a tendency, but now the poor are blamed for, for being there, for being hungry, for needing food. Um, Johan? Yeah, I have a, a question too, I think both Rob and Hiroyuki. Uh, because I think this uh, this discussion of a, of a balanced interaction between nature and, and artifice, I think it's been much reflected upon within uh, the field of architecture and also I think in relation to sculpture. 
And I was thinking about, uh, you know, Frank Lloyd writes this uh, famous uh, falling water house um, that's maybe not the best example of it, but it at least embodies this idea of returning to a sort of, of coexistence with, with nature from, from the point of view of, of civilization. And I'm, I'm just throwing it out there, you know, what, what can architecture do, you think, in terms of, of reconnecting us to nature without and within? Do you have any reflections upon this? Uh, yeah. Um, well, uh, um, this is a really uh, uh, major, major yeah. topic, and I, 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 um, um, I think I deal with it uh, in uh, uh, in fundamental way. I guess, I guess, I, I when I go to the studio, I do things. I feel like I am trying to be a part of larger flow of something, some kind, mm. nature, things that are fundamental uh, to our species, <coughs> other species and the environment and all that. So um, to me, it's, um, it's just a way of being. I don't really try to manipulate uh, consciously, uh, try to do things, I, I try to, uh, just make myself available so that uh, something can speak through me. And uh, sometimes that's um, successful, sometimes uh, that's not. And I make uh, uh, judgment in uh, what's important, what's not. And, uh, and I try to communicate with people. So I think uh, what you just described is a major uh, element uh, of my practice as an artist. And, um, uh, and it's a really, really important notion. But at the same time, uh, it's the field of art is the same thing. Um, the concept of nature, concept of what's good and what's bad are decided by the corporate um, propaganda and uh, indoctrination. So we have this mindset, we have this worldview that are already packaged so that uh, whatever we do will be within the uh, plans. So this is a really uh, uh, difficult situation. And, and the reason um, why I'm so adamant about uh, talking about things that are truthful, uh, seeing things as they are, I, I take these things really, really seriously because I want to be um, uh, honest in expressing whatever that's coming out of me. And, uh, um, and that's totally missing. It, the, the art institutions, cultural institutions, they all, try to pressure you to be uh, part of the uh, uh, establishment agenda. Um, like for instance, I, uh, I just uh, did a, a panel for the, uh, 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 this art organization that decides uh, giving grants, uh, giving uh, fiscal sponsorship and all that. So, um, we talk about applications and uh, we talk about what kind of artists are interested in and, and we, we see all those keywords, we see uh, identity, we see climate, 
Uh, one of them was, of course, about Ukraine. And, you know, it's, it's really, uh, I understand painfully, uh, understand that those keywords are, you know, the selling uh, points. And, uh, but at the same time, um, it, it is sad. It is sad to see that um, what we should really um, uh, cherish in our studios, the uh, uh, what happens with the materials, what happens with the uh, visual elements, what happens, what we can do to um, uh, uh, say something uh, through what we do, those things are missing. And uh, we are somehow hardened into uh, agendas. And, um, and the institutions are part of those things because, you know, we, we are put against each other, we compete, you know, you know. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I just want to interject that, that <clears throat> one of the things that Adorno used to say was that the radical nature of art <clears throat> is found in its uselessness and not, uh, not and, and the radical nature is not found in, in art's opinions. And this is this is something that that has been erased completely in in MFA programs and 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 maybe uh, galleries, museums, like all the all the curators of prestige institutions for the arts, and certainly in academia. Uh, and when you read uh, art texts, if you read gallery copy or or anything for almost invariably, you will hear uh, explanations of what the, what the artwork means. Um, So-and-so is uh, exploring the boundaries of gender and, you know, blah, 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 which is an instant red flag. I mean, it's an instant signal that this is <clears throat> almost invariably rubbish um, and not worth looking at. But there are very, very few people writing coherently ab about fine arts and and there are no great art critics left and that will get me into a whole discussion of <clears throat> this rise of left brands um people like Gabriel Rockhill um but but it is it has it has the the last 20 years has seen the destruction of uh the last remnants of uh, of working class voices in the arts, the last remnants of of counterculture dissent, oppositional um, uh, uh, stances toward the status quo. It's just about entirely gone. I mean, you find it in certain places. You don't find it in North America or Europe much at all. But uh, <clears throat> there is a there is a profound. Um, deficit in in uh, in arts education in 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 how to talk about art and how to look at art, and it's partly been eclipsed by entertainment. Of course, I mean this goes. I mean Guy Debord even recognized this. But anyway, that's my interjection. Rob, did you want to answer Johan there? Yeah, Johan's question about this uh, interface architecture or urbanism as an interface between people or human psyche and the world. I mean, 
I grew. I spent most of my life in the United States, uh, where there's a very particular form of this interface um, that dominated for the last 80, 90 years over most of the country, even <clears throat> you know suburban sprawl, which I lived in most of my life. Um, I also lived in Center City, Philadelphia, for a while, three blocks from the art museum, um, and here in Sweden the situation is pretty different it's the country is not and even the cities they're not really dominated by a sprawling suburban sprawl um so uh, i have my opinions about this uh and preferences kind of as a designer <clears throat> or a person who has to look at urbanism you know cities and I just have to look at them and hope my eyes don't bleed uh, and architecture. Yeah, like like John posts those hideous examples often. But I think, like Hiroki was saying, that at another level, it kind of doesn't matter at all what any, any of this uh, is formed into when we live in a time now where, <clears throat> I mean, can you find a single story in mainstream media that's not obviously idiotically false. I mean, I, I can't, when I was younger, there was, a, there was a mix. There were critics and there were analysts and there were officials and even politicians. There were people who were saying things that were at least meaningful in some way, not just idiotically wrong and counterproductive and stupefying. And I think it's basically 100% now on the latter. That's a weird environment. We were clearly, I mean, the mass media is the voice of the people who rule over us and they are profoundly uh, mentally ill. So in that environment, I don't know what architecture can do. Really, no idea. Yeah, well, I, th I th you know, I think, <clears throat> I think, um that that that's the the destruction of the american landscape if we're if we're talking about the united states began and and was recorded by those photographers the um topographical i forget what they were called people like lewis boltz and stephen shore and and um and they they photographed american vernacular architecture and they photographed um you know uh, suburbia the denuded landscapes of suburbia and and uh they photographed las vegas and they photographed the the southwest the the kind of these these um ready-made communities without history and so forth uh, and and that was that was the first the first kind of critical um, examination of, of what was happening. And, and those are all remarkable guys. Louis Baltz was a great photographer. He just died a couple of years ago. Was from Pasadena, California, in fact. Um, but, but that sort of awakened a certain cottage industry or set in motion a kind of cottage industry looking at Robert Ventura's Leaving Las Vegas was one of the books and um, uh, Reiner Banham's uh, what's it called Four Ecologies or something of Los Angeles 
and and that led into writers <clears throat> like Mike Davis's book City of Quartz, which is an extraordinary book, of, kind of about the history of Los Angeles, but it touches um, <clears throat> extensively on on um, the architecture of of the West, but in particular Los Angeles, which has a a history of um, architectural amnesia because nothing lasts, everything is torn down. And the lockdowns, interestingly, accelerated this, um, something like one in three restaurants, including a lot of historically interesting buildings, uh, got shuttered and are now being bulldozed uh, in Southern California. So, so uh, it, this was something that was that was noted and 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 written about and but it has it has continued on uninterrupted anyway uh maroon yeah i'm just gonna make an observation about i think cities in general i think are still in our time ideological constructs that carry the idea of imperialism and they have their centers they have always been centers of empire that's where the public was ruled from. And so if there has to be an ideological shift in the public, what does that look like is probably a good question to start asking. Because if I think capital cities in that sense are always the magnets to which people are drawn, and which is instructing the public at large. So what is happening in the capital is <laughs> going to build down. And the people are going to start coming to the capital. So what, how do we change? I mean, if we have to change the model of imperialistic thinking within human society, then that's a good place to start looking at why, how do we shift that? What has to happen within the individual? <clears throat> yeah, I, you know, it's interesting because um, there's, there's a kind of dialectic at work in cities because what you say is true. And for a certain period of time, at least in the 20th century, big cities also were, were where arts movements began and uh, where uh, radical dissent began, bohemia began, counterculture began. That, however, has changed because there is essentially no counterculture now, and it makes cities... Uh, absolutely intolerable because there's nothing um on the progressive side of the ledger left uh johan yeah i was just can i just add something yeah 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 it was i think it was tristan zara from the dada movement who had made this uh, quote i think it's his quote that he was going to fight capitalism by sitting on his ass <laughs> but now that you have now now art has been looked at as investment no investment bankers have gotten involved in the art market, right? So that kind of derails entirely any philosophy, any kind of anti-establishment philosophy that it might carry. I think so. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Johan, yeah, I think I think there's room for a lot of nuance here, and I, I think you're right, John, that the city has changed over at least the last last half century or something. But but there is also an important point in what Varun is saying. Which I think is, I mean that the the you can translate it to this institution of the the city, this this basically ancient institution of the city, 
well, it kind of structures the the normalcy in very fundamental ways. And an interesting example of this, I think, is the 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 pathologizing construct of ADHD. I I read some interesting research on this. Uh, this uh, well, I, I'm not sure what you, what you should call it, but the, this this set of traits. And this research, at least. Uh, claimed to, to show that how, how people with, uh, with these ADHD traits thrive in uh, quote-unquote primitive nomadic contexts, but they do progressively less well the more organized and the more sedentary the society is. And the thing is, I, I think we've structured technological civilization and, and our city in accordance with the mindset of these, you know, clustered monomaniacs such as myself, who do perfectly fine with the with the, the meager reward from from stuff like watching our investments grow slowly and incrementally, or reading hundreds of books on philosophy, while we're you know pushing out and labeling as deficient those people who simply are adapted to a, a more fast-paced, uh, high-reward way of life, which was perhaps more adapted to to a, a nomadic uh, hunter-gatherer sort of situation. Yeah, this is, <clears throat> this is a really interesting topic. Um, my, my sense is that, um, you know, and, and, and I'm, you know, I'm old, so I, I'm looking back on a, a number of decades. Uh, there has, the people I know <clears throat> who have remained radical in, as artists, but as thinkers, as, as people, um, none of them live in cities anymore. Like me, they've all ended up um, on the periphery because it's affordable and, and because it's just, it's just easier and, and there's no work for radical voices in the metropolis anymore. Um, and uh, at one time, that was, that was certainly not the case, of course. And, and so there's been this, this kind of profound shift i think over like the last 30 years or so but it but it but it coincides also with a, a the evaporating of of arts funding um by the government you know the 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 famous example was that the marine corps marching band uh got a bigger grant every year, had a bigger budget than the entire National Endowment for the Arts. Uh, and, and back in the 60s and 70s, the government was throwing money at artists. I mean, you know, they were giving them free housing. I know people still have rent-controlled apartments in Manhattan. Uh, <laughs> they never left uh, wisely. Uh, uh, but, but nobody had to work. I mean, we've said this before, I've said this before. Nobody had to work, you could survive as an artist. And this was particularly true, actually, if you were talking of the United States in Los Angeles. New York was always a little hard. There was a shortage of housing. It's a small island, Manhattan. And that was where the action was. In LA, if, you, if, you, if your practice didn't demand New York. You went to Los Angeles because it was so much easier to live. There were no cold winters. You could live outside, essentially almost homeless and survive. And people did that. 
Um, but that's not true. LA rents are now um, higher than New York, in fact. So, so the, the space, the official space for um, arts and artisans has disappeared. Um, Johan? Yeah, this is just a reflection on the same theme and maybe, maybe Corey would like to add something on this. But I think what, what you call, what you consider as a shrinking space for art, I think that can be connected to, to what I would call the colonization of, of the nature within and associating from the ADHD discussion. I think the psychotropic area of big pharma is quite emblematic of this because we're in some sense using pharmaceuticals, you know, to cancel out and tame the conflicts of the psyche that, that to almost every other culture would have been approached as some sort of fruitful opportunity of spiritual growth. So, you know, we're, we're negating and colonizing the expressions of the deeper self within whenever they come up above the sur surface, sort of canceling the unconscious in a way. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Corey, did you want to? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I've been distracted. I have a squirrel here terrorizing me. I found it at the mall. <laughs> and You're always um, being terrorized by squirrels. It's very it's, no, it's super cute. It's just really hungry, and I had to run inside and get it um, some nuts. Um, yeah, it was abandoned at the mall, and now it lives here. And every day I see it. Anyway, sorry, um, sorry, Johan, I was distracted. That's, that's, um, that's okay. <clears throat> I mean, a, you know, even a blind squirrel gathers some nuts is my favorite saying. Um, but Johan, what you say is true. I mean, of course. And but but that's not. I think, yeah, it's not just arts, right? It's it's <clears throat> the the. I mean, this, and I'm writing a blog post that touches upon this as it happens. But the what happened to psychoanalysis when in the 1930s was Freud died, I believe, in 39. Um, you had the rise of fascism. You had the complete destruction of the original Vienna circle of kind of radical socialist psychoanalysts, uh, all dispersed, went into exile, <clears throat> and some came to the United States when psychoanalysis was tr transplanted, as it were, in the United States. It was uh, left to the, the ravages of American sociology, number one, the banalization. I mean, Adorno and Horkheimer felt this, all the Frankfurt School exiles felt this, um, because sociology is the American discipline par excellence. Mm -hmm. It is perfect for the American sort of the residual puritanism in America. Um, but it also became medicalized. Uh, you know, Freud wrote the question of lay analysis, and this was quickly shelved. You had to get a medical degree to become a psychoanalyst, mm -hmm. to become a psychiatrist, and uh, prescribe drugs and so forth and so on. And the prescription part of that looms as very important uh, because the medicalization also meant the pharmacalizing, if that's a word, um, of, uh, of psychoanalysis, the treatment became chemical warehousing in a sense that that uh, it was adjustment therapy ego psychology is adjustment therapy you hear the term make your life work what that means is you are able to go to work and, and keep your job not that you're going to be happier not that your suffering will be reduced in any way but that you can function 
that you can adjust to an irrational world that surrounds you. And that was key. And that has continued. And, and the therapy culture in the United States, and I, and I say, and I've said this before, I know I'm repeating myself, um, because I know some very good therapists, some genuinely very, very good therapists. And there may be more good therapists, in fact, in the United States than anywhere else. But there is a shitload of bad therapists. And um, as a culture, the therapeutic culture is really regressive in the U.S. And it is there to um, safeguard the status quo, essentially. Um, Varun? Yeah, just to build on what Johan and you just said, the disconnect from the unconscious, essentially. I think it's more that the potential, the collective potential in the unconscious, which I think is shared, that is instructed into material lived experience externally, because the internal mechanism with which an individual can transform that potential into reality has been entirely neutralized by the establishment through education systems, through through debt, through pressures and fear and such things. So that disconnect is very necessary for the establishment to neutralize the inherent intelligence of the individual and to keep itself perpetuating, I think. That's what's happening. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting because I'm just, it's very funny. I'm writing a blog post, it's almost done about this very topic, kind of the history of the unconscious. Um, but, but yeah, the, the, the U.S. has never trusted uh, anything that can't be measured or weighed or um, somehow scientifically cataloged. That's simply been the ascendant and dominant um, um, ideological position of of America. I mean, and this, you know, this goes back to, to colonial America. I mean, it's how the United States was founded. Uh, you, you have a society based on the genocide of 600 Native American tribes, a nation built on slave labor, and a nation founded by Puritans. I mean, these are the, the three kind of spiritual crimes um, and, and the three spiritual wounds that America has never healed from and, and, and never will, I don't think. Um, Johan? Yeah, you're exactly right, I think, because I would say that US is the, the US is a society of instrumental rationality par excellence. I mean, you, you, the heirs of, of the British Empire and all of that. And that these colonial processes would come to express themselves as, you know, this capitalist medicalization of the abnormal. I think that's inevitable. And then also this process, this medicalization, I think is connected to, to, to uh, the, the shrinking space for art because it implies that there's ever less space for, for, you know, the weird or the experimental. And even the space of the weird today is kind of filled by pained and curated cultural products and because everything the least ever <laughs> is pathologized. So, so, you know, culture gets neutered inevitably. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, you can't, you can't separate um, the rise of, of cinema and, and the economic forces 
subsidizing cinema, the role of right. of the Pentagon and CIA in 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 um, its infiltration of film. I mean, that's not true. That has not been true historically in world cinema. And and you know, you can look at you can look at you know Italian, French, Russian, uh, Japanese, Chinese film. And, and it's quite different. I mean, there was a golden age of American studio film. There was, right after World War II, uh, film noir. It was all emigre Jewish directors who were fight, you know, fleeing fascism, fighting fascism, and their sensibility sort of was, was overlaid against these pulp scripts they were given and there was this kind of wonderful product that came out of that which was film noir uh american hard-boiled newspaper writers did the scripts jewish intellectual emigre directors directed them and it was a fabulous product that that uh you know but it lasted just until probably about 1955 was the was the was the the final kind of death throw of of that moment anyway rob just a question then uh, how does a civilization of inst uh, instrumental rationality uh get to the point where it is now where all of its uh, primary narratives and rhetoric are profoundly irrational Uh, good question. Who wants to take that? <laughs> I well, feel I'll like just, I'm a, a just, game show host. I'll add that. Okay. okay. Speaking, speaking of that irrational and speaking what Brune had mentioned earlier about um, becoming, what did you say, Brune? Becoming, um, what was it? I don't know. Anyway, you said something that I thought was really vital. Okay, so climate emergency, climate emergency, and yet we're plowing over the farmland every day to build uh, million-dollar homes, right? They're like literally five, four or five bathrooms. Um, it, how does that? How is that rational to be building these massive, fucking ugly houses, right? They're and they're built like like garbage. In twenty years, they'll be teardowns. So how do, how does that fit in with climate change, right? No, and, and and that's lost. <laughs> that's completely lost on everyone. I mean, the fact that the cities have declared a climate emergency, but have at the same time um, created legislation, um, you, you basically exploiting the housing crisis to say now you don't even have to do land assessments because we're in the, this housing crisis. You can go in and just destroy all land to keep building because we need all these homes meanwhile no, the, the, the population is declining right? you know well the russian i mean just quickly and then and then johan but just quickly no i mean when i hear this climate warning fear-mongering i think but you know nobody mentions the u.s military Nobody mentions this gratuitous NATO expansion long-term plan for regime change in Moscow. These crazy State Department policies. Nobody even mentions it. They don't mention the private jet industry. The bulk of airline travel globally is private jets. And it doesn't even get mentioned. You know, I haven't seen a single one of these billionaires uh, who has stopped buying beachfront property, you know. 
nobody's afraid. Nobody's afraid of climate. Nobody in the ruling class is afraid of climate. They know it's horseshit. Um, but it is it is being, you know, the working class, the poor are being punished with with this rhetoric and and it's used as cover for, you know, a further disciplining of the poor. Um, Johan and then Varun. Yeah, I, Rob, just to respond to your question, I think it's a, it's a really great question and an important one to, to pose on why, you know, a civilization built upon instrumental reason becomes quite unhinged and, and pretty quickly at that. But, but I think that this is simply a problem at the root, because instrumental rationality, as, as we speak of it in relation to the Frankfurt School and all that, that's basically just a watered down one dimensional simplification of this this complex entity that that classical philosophy both east as well as west would approach as full blown human reason so so it's a it's kind of a caricature of reason yeah <clears throat> um varun yeah i think how we as a public view rationality it that that's the realm of the public of everyday lived experience and and trying to get along with people and things like that. But I think, I think the rationale of of the establishment is entirely different to that. They have their their rationality is functioning on on genocide. Their rationality is yeah. functioning on complete control and amassing as much wealth as possible at the cost of other people's lives. So the, there are two rationalities working here, and one is. And I, I would wager, you know, you know, to say that one is psychopathic and sociopathic, and the other one is under threat from it, and weighed under it, and is struggling with it very deeply, and it has done for quite a long time. So that line of of rationality, in that sense, has to be drawn very clearly. I think. Well, I th I think we're seeing. Um... We're seeing several um, <clears throat> sometimes competing, sometimes perhaps even contradictory uh, global projects. And, and um, uh, it, it points up that the ruling class is not <clears throat> entirely in agreement with itself. I mean, they have shared interests. They have ultimately the same goals, but but their strategies and tactics differ. And, and um, the, the, you know, the, the transference of wealth that began in its kind of hyper-accelerated phase under Obama is now just about complete. I mean, you know, Gates, <laughs> fucking Gates, you know, bought up even more farmland recently and uh we we see all of these the very richest one percent further accumulating wealth and you wonder why and for what purpose do they need more i mean how can you possibly how can jeff bezos or or you know benioff or any of these people need more than they already have so it's not rational it's entirely entirely irrational and it's morbid there is a morbidity a kind of collective death wish in the ruling class that is that is being visited upon the the global poor the the working poor um because i one of the things that i wanted to mention and I, i'm just interested and if anybody wants to comment I, i'm finding one of the things i am finding in 
in the West, in, in Europe, but it's more acute in the United States, is that the quality of life, unless you're very rich, has deteriorated. Life is much harder. Part of this is this pretense of automation um, helping. Automation helps nobody. It makes life much harder. It shifts the labor onto the, the, the purchaser um, of, of services. Uh, the, the service industry itself is gone. You, you have to talk to computers and recorded voices. You can never get anybody on the phone. Um, the mails are all are broken everywhere, but they're particularly bad in the United States. Um, there's no services for people in much of the United States that are what they call food deserts. Um, it's it's a utterly dystopian, you know, planet at this point. And it is because I think that the ruling class is psychopathic and is irrational. Um, and probably self-loathing and, and a whole number of other things. But, but it is this, this unprecedented inequality that we're talking about. That's, that's what has made this level of the irrational possible. Um, Hiroyuki? Hiroyuki. See, I see your blue hand there. And, yeah, and sorry, I, I was, uh, <laughs> I had to unmute the thing. Yeah, I know, um, you had a squirrel that you read. <laughs> um, so the, uh, the thing about the uh, irrationality, um, the, I, I think um, uh, uh, it is also, I think it's also a functional aspect of the uh, establishment playing a god. Um, the, in order to do that, um, it would have to act uh, unpredictable. It would have to act um, uh, in a way that their commands are unconditional and uh, uh, everything is all encompassing. And, uh, but in order to do that, uh, what are you gonna do about the, uh, the fact that it's all irrational? You know, so um, in the process, I think uh, just as our concept of nature is replaced with the actual uh, nature, with the uh, artificial concept, artificial concept of the nature in order for the um, establishment to, to function within this, uh, this sphere of influence. Um, I think um, the same thing happens with the, uh, the very presence of the uh, establishment. Establishment is the all-encompassing, uh, uh, all-seeing being that's uh, uh, irrational. You know, we are not uh, capable of getting in there and try to understand because we are not uh, the beings up to the capacity of the uh, establishment. So I think there is this um, um, uh, shrewd um, 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 trick by the, uh, the whole thing to see, um, um, uh, basically we're giving, uh, given the situation in which uh, everything is uh, irrational and uh, uh, totally dysfunctional. <laughs> and then 
uh, the establishment is would come in and say that uh, you, you don't know what you're doing. We are living in this uh, post uh, truth world and there's no truth, but we have solutions. We have the wealth and right. power. Well, sure. You know. Yeah. And, and look, this is, this is, um, this is, this is kind of, you know, I mean, you could, it's a, it's a class struggle ultimately. I mean, this is, this is about this inequality. Um, and, and you look at the policies, you look at the democratic party in the United States. I mean, this is what, this is what, I mean, if you, if you came from outer space and you looked at this, you would think this is a, you know, this is a planet that just needs to be blown up. This, there's no hope. I mean, you have a senile president and can't even read a teleprompter anymore. Um, the policies of his administration, I mean, I mean, <laughs> you know, um, not just Ukraine, where we are openly supporting um, you know, unapologetic Nazis, the most corrupt country in Europe, which is suddenly, you know, being rebranded as as the plucky underdog in a fight against Imperial Russia. And I, you know, I mean, I do know people who believe this. A lot of people have a, a blind Russophobic, you know, hatred of Putin and Russia and think that that Russia's come to destroy Europe and overrun it like like pagan hordes or something like the Tartars. Um, I find this extraordinary and kind of breathtaking, um, but, but there you have it. And, and most people, this, I, I'm moving this conversation over to smartphones because um, one of the things I noticed on this vacation was when you're walking on the sidewalk anywhere you have to be careful, more careful than before, because people will bump into you because they're not looking where they're going. They're looking at their cell phones. They walk while looking at their cell phones. It's, it's the most, the, I mean, it is the sleepwalking. And this addiction to smartphones, the distractions of smartphones, the stuff people absorb on smartphones, the level of propaganda, and we're going to have to talk about just the the, the extent, the degree, the magnitude of propaganda today is breathtaking. I mean, transhumanism, the entire gen transgender wars. And I mean, um, you know, and, and there are, uh, there is a small percentage of seriously needy um, um, transgender like 0.15% who are completely lost in this discussion, who have completely been eclipsed and forgotten. Um, and what has happened is the, 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 the agenda that's being pushed for a myriad of reasons, I suspect, um, has simply elicited a lot of hatred in people. And so now, you know, transgenderism is just mocked and made fun of and people ridicule them. But of course they do. There's a deep strain of misogyny in this too. When it, it's, you know, the destruction of women's athletics, on and on and on. But all of these policies are irrational and, and 
operative on a level that is hard to explain in any kind of logical, rational terms. It's it's so it's it's a very strange situation. I, I said before, since we started these podcasts, when the topic was COVID and um, we are now entering the monkeypox era. So we don't even have to talk about death counts because nobody has died from monkeypox, yet it's a global emergency anyway. Um, and the war in Ukraine, which nobody mentions in discussions of climate or pollution or meat or insect food or any of it, nobody ever mentions the US military ever, ever, ever. And yet they are the largest polluter in the world probably. And, and all the interests in mining and, and the extraction of rare earth minerals, all of this stuff passes under the radar. People are more concerned with, you know, uh, you know, celebrity uh, trials and whatever. And, and, and so the, the, the system kind of rolls on in its, uh, in its ever uh, accelerating pace of, of, of this irrationality. And, and, and it's, you know, it's hard to explain to people who are so indoctrinated and so many people are so indoctrinated. It's very difficult. Um, when you, when you voice dissent, you are really stigmatized. And, and I know I keep my mouth shut in a lot of situations because it's just not worth it. Rob? Um, in a time now where the discourse, the narratives are so shitty, um, <laughs> the, the quality is so low. And I spend a lot of my time looking around at people uh, and wondering like, how do so many people like, so how do you quantify it? Like, so many people just buy they believe everything yeah. everything yeah. that everything that's on the tv or the smartphone they believe it all right and they uh they really sign up for it too that with the they become sort of like a religious about it. it's their religion and you're a heretic if you don't and um so but uh, i think i'm starting to think the people who believe it uh, you know, all these people we know that everyone knows uh, that most people, I guess, I don't know if it's most people, I, I'm just guessing, but they're not the problem, really. It's just human nature. The, it, the problem is, the problem is the people telling these, this bullshit, the, 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 these irrational self-declared gods who rule over us are the lowest quality people in human history, I think you, you can easily argue that, and they're incompetent, they're psychotic, they're uh, they're uh, the words have already been said today here uh, in this conversation. They're they're really grotesque, and they're also. But the, the I wanted to just add they're they're also really incompetent. Okay, you yeah, know, I always uh, so wonder about that. I mean. Yes, on the one hand, they're incompetent, but it's like planned incompetence or something. Yeah, I want to get it, it, I want to get a group conscience on that one because I no longer. Yeah. I mean, it's a very good point, but I no longer know what incompetence means. In there's, they're certainly getting the job done, like with getting jabs into everybody, right? So they 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 were competent in doing that. But in terms of like, are they competent scientists? 
Are they competent no. journalists? Are they competent uh, uh, engineers? Anything. Can they, can they uh, design and manufacture competent military hardware? Uh, no, but they can certainly lie about it endlessly and everyone believes it. They're competent at lying. So I was just gonna bring up Carl Rove. I don't know if Carl Rove, uh, certainly Carl Rove is not the origin of this idea, but he openly elevated, sort of he practiced this thing and then he sort of even admitted it. It became a, a thing in, out in the open. You, you take, you project, whatever your crimes are, you project, now this is probably goes back to Machiavelli or who knows how long, right? But it's certainly elevated in our lifetimes by Karl Rove. And you, you saw it in the internal politics. You just blame the other people in the other party for whatever your failures and crimes are. And it's extremely effective. Uh, and then the other party does the same. The Democrats, they tried to, they've certainly surpassed Carl Rove's um, attempts at this. Um, and then there's a, the, the reason I'm talking about this, it's just, just this. If you want a diagnosis of what these people are, if you want to be able to describe what these people are, just look at what they say about other people. Like, look at the imperial targets and how they describe Putin or Assad or whoever. They're, that's self-description. Yeah, there's a there's a level of delusion um, um, <clears throat> existent in in um, in the ruling class, as it were. I, I mean, there's no question about that. Um, Johan, and then Hiroyuki. Johan, did you rescue a squirrel too? Oh, sorry, okay. uh, my dog again. Yeah, yeah. yes. I think this is, is a really interesting question, Rob. I think it, much of the perceived you know, effectiveness and competence of something like evidence-based medicine. I think much of it is marketing and, and, you know, sheer belief among the common people. Just take an example as, as well known as, you know, the, the dangerous drug class called the statins, the cholesterol lowering set of drugs, which subsequent research has shown is, is completely useless and uh, increases the risk of death for almost all, all cohorts. Yet still people took these drugs for, for a couple of decades. I think most people felt a little better and believe they were you know, treated by, by competent people. And, and you know, the entire edifice of the myth of science and health and medicine works to to bring about this this uh, experience of uh, you know being treated receiving uh, health all of that and i think this also connects to uh, maybe to some extent to the ngo sphere and, and maybe you could say something about that corey because i think we're seeing the same the same myth of competence and progress being, you know, transferred into that uh, that sort of field in some sense, and the privatization of progress, maybe. Yeah, I was thinking about that. How when you, uh, you know, basically the Rockefellers and Ford, and the other big foundations are just re-engineering um, the the you know, society right now at large, we we're talking about that. Actually, I was talking about that earlier with Hiroyuki, I, I think, or maybe on the telegram with you guys, like we're being re-engineered. And when you own all the media and when you own all the NGOs, it's actually quite an easy task 
right? To re-engineer whole society. Like we actually don't even know how we would function without that um, engineering that's been going on for decades, right? That we live and breathe just like the, the air we breathe. And I, I just have so much to say about everything that we've talked about. I'm not as cynical as John about the climate that people need to be only because I'm a gardener and I can plant trees that I could not plant 20 years ago that will now you know, survive because the zones are changing and that. But what people have to understand, these psychopaths that have created all of our environmental um, problems and that continue to poison our bodies as well as the environment don't give a fuck about the climate and never have and they don't give a shit about the environment they never have and never will and under the guise of climate we are continuing to destroy the environment there's huge plans to desecrate as much as possible over the coming years and decades i mean that's the Mm. agenda under the guise of climate you know and then when we were talking we started off the program with on the topic of um, meat and not i mean um, for full disclosure, I'm, I've been a vegetarian for, I don't know, 25 years, maybe longer and almost vegan, but not quite. Um, I mean, not crazy, you know, I'm not like religious about being vegan, but <laughs> because I mean, to be honest in, in Canada or wherever in industrialized societies, most meat that most people I'm talking like 95% of the population or higher most meat that people consume is complete um completely toxic right yeah, from no, I should, yeah I should add that actually I was a vegetarian myself for a number of years um and one of the reasons I changed was that um it was harder because of certain food limitations in Norway, but also because you can get good meat here. I won't eat meat that you buy in America right. supermarkets. So it but- depends on where you live, right? And and what happens, they're using that agenda, um, not because they care about animals or care about your health, but because that can be used to commodify nature and um, basically re- um, relocate people um, so I'm struggling with words today to basically kick tribal people off their lands, right? Um, the, the world's remaining tribal peoples now are bad for the planet because they're killing the, the animals and eating them and destroying the, the natural environment that actually they protect. And so every single agenda is driven by you know, these market, market solutions and everything is framed and marketed in order to you know, for the pursuit of further colonization, further, um, you know, saturation of capitalism. I, more and more this week, I don't know if I mentioned, I know I I mentioned the woman that walks around with her baby in the pram and her toddler that falls on the road in that because I've never, I think once when the internet went down a couple of weeks ago in Canada for two, for a full day, some days, two or three days. That's the first time I actually saw her face without a phone <laughs> and no internet. And then the other more and more, John, just like you were saying with this, um, with these phones, it's like reach, it's reaching saturation where it's completely normal to look at your phone, ignore everybody around you. I see so much children just sit there ignored, absolutely ignored with their absolutely, parents on, yeah. on their phone. It's stunning, I know. Um, so anyway, I know I'm jumping all over. No, I, I, I wanted to mention too, that, that, that this topic of food is something we should talk about because, um, uh, it, it is, 
I mean, I think we are seeing now like two generations critically affected, health critically affected by, by uh, you know, corporate produced food, poison food. And yeah. it's why people, there, you know, such a high percentage of young people who are, are obese, things you didn't see before. And the second thing is, the planet, I'm just, you know, disclaimer, the planet might be getting warmer. It's getting colder in some places. It might be getting warmer. I just don't believe it has fuck all to do with, you know, carbon or carbon footprint or any of this other nonsense. That's all I think. It might, you know, it might be getting warmer some places. It's sure as shit not getting warmer where I live, unfortunately. But okay. Yeah. Uh, Johan, Hiroyuki, everybody has their hand up. Yeah. When did you want to say something, Hiroyuki? Well, I was just uh, uh, thinking that um, all those, um, um, you know, the, the how we perceive uh, incompetency and uh, irrationality um, is uh, is probably partly because um, um, for the system, it's it's much more. Um, um, easier to swallow uh, incompetency than uh, its uh, structural problem of the fact that they are ruling with power and wealth, you know? So um, every time we hear um, things, um, you know, uh, it was a mistake that uh, right, the U.S. invaded right. Iraq, you know, right. we hear yeah, that today, you know, Everything was I mean, <laughs> but I mean, it, it was not a mistake, you know, they did it to destroy the country, they did it to steal everything from the country, and they did it to undermine momentum of socialism in Middle East and mm. beyond. So, absolutely, absolutely. you know, so it's, it's not a mistake and the irrationality, it's the same thing. You know, it's irrational that the uh, uh, medical institution is doing this or that. It's irrational that uh, the, uh, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. is sending uh, uh, weapons to Ukraine to um, protect people when they are uh, engaging in proxy war for the U.S. empire. It, 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 you know, it's... <laughs> yeah, it's... it's. it's you know. I'm just going to interject one thing. I don't mean to interrupt you, and I want to go to Johan very quick. Yeah, that, that idea of incompetent, because you hear people, it's the bumbling empire mem, right? And, and oh, they couldn't do anything right. They lost uh, Vietnam. They lost Iraq. They left Afghanistan in a shambles. That was, that was not a mistake. They, right. they knew what was going to happen. They just don't care. I mean, right, it's, right. I think it's malevolence often, not that they are overly competent, mind you. And I think in some cases they are, they are profoundly stupid, but, but it's, it's, you know, these are, these mistakes are mistakes to you and me. They're not mistakes to um, people at the Rand Corporation. Right. It's, it's like, you know, the, the, um, every time there's a mistake, um, the, 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 the certain people are going to be benefiting. It's not like, uh, oh, there was a big mistake and uh, we all benefited and we happened to become healthy and, uh, you know, <laughs> that doesn't happen, right? Yeah, no. I just think, <laughs> I, I didn't mean any of that. I, I did, I mean it, I meant it like this. If, if you, if these people say we're the gods of the known universe, <laughs> wouldn't they be able to uh, enforce that uh, against Russia militarily and China, 
they don't have what it takes and mm. they probably won't maybe i mean for the foreseeable future they're so far behind so far behind in, in every tech technology every weapon system layers of weapon systems they're totally yeah but i don't think i think that's i think that's um that's partly um a corruption in in the, the you know the the defense industry and the state department and the pen there's like a revolving door that these people and they developed a ship that <clears throat> that famous cruiser whatever it was um that looks like a brutalist building it's very funny looking um I don't, they spent like a trillion dollars or something insane on it. And it simply doesn't work. Um, it's, it's dry docked forever. It was a complete boondoggle. Well, you know, was that incompetency? I suppose perhaps, um, but, but nobody actually lost any money. They don't care about that. Um, do they actually care about beating Russia? I mean, I don't even know if they care about that. I, they just want to make money. They just want control and money, and they have that. So I don't know. It's an interesting question. Um, Varun, yo, I got a sea of blue hands in front of me. Uh, um, just Varun quickly. First. Yeah, yeah. Okay, just quickly. I think if we look back from um, the so called predictions of Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis and see the kind of experiments that they're doing and they're failing at, I think that's. That's what is happening on a larger time scale. They're looking at unification with the Godhead through artificial, artificial intelligence te technology, imperializing the known universe. So they are now looking at the population of the world as an experiment. They're trying everything that they can. And in the meantime, some of the guys are making money, sure. But that's, I think, the larger project is looking at, you know, people as just experimental lab rats. I think that's true, but you know, I just will interject that Ray Kurzweil is is a moron. You know, is is a is a laughable moron, and and so, yeah, that's a good question. How did he get a reputation? I don't know. The same reason Tom Cruise is a you know actor paid ten million dollars a pig. I don't know. You know, he's five foot five and can't act. He's had one expression, but he's a big movie star. You know, uh, I don't know. Johan. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to end with this, but but I, it would be nice to hear some of your comments on it. Uh, it relates to, uh, you know, food production, to to uh, competence and, and uh, to, to, to Russia, not least. Uh, so it's, uh, I'm going to read to you from uh, uh, to the 1918 decree on land. Uh, it's partially written by Lenin. And it was a, a decree in the, the Russian Socialist Republic, you know, before the formation of the Soviet Union. And it's, it's on, on land use. And I'll begin with uh, the sixth clause of, uh, of the second chapter. I'll, I'll just go ahead. Uh, the right to use the land shall be accorded to all citizens of the Russian state without distinction of sex, desiring to cultivate it by their own labor with the help of their families or in partnership, but only as long as they're able to cultivate it. The employment of hired labor is not permitted. And they go on to say that if you're temporarily physically disabled, the village commune will be obliged to assist you for the period of disability. 
uh, land tenure shall be on an equality basis, uh, which means that the land shall be distributed among the working people in conformity with a labor standard or a subsistence standard, depending on local conditions. And there will, will be no restriction on the forms of land tenure. So they allow for households, farms, cooperatives, communal farming, which is supposed to be decided uh, at local level in every village. And when land is alienated from the village because you know somebody dies or how, I'm not sure exactly why, it becomes part of the national land fund and it gets redistributed. Uh, and finally, the land of the members uh, who leave the commune shall revert to the land fund and the preferential right to such land shall be given to the near relatives of the member who have left or to persons designated by the latter. That's just, uh, you know, a. Uh, a brief uh, picking from it, but but you know, they spoke of the the socialist experiment, but but in light of, of the contemporary situation, I think this almost sounds uh, you know conservative. Uh, and do you do you have any reflection? Does anything come up when you when you hear this? Well, I just I think that that um, it's it's interesting if you go back and you read, um, you know, Lenin or or a lot of the early theorists of the Bolshevik revolution, but um, what's his name? Winter Oak, Paul Kuden Kudenek, what's his name? Winter Oak um, on Twitter. Uh, he has a very interesting site because he has a lot of the early, uh, uh, just sort of post middle ages, the English, uh, you know, uh, agrarian land rebels and, and, um, you read their texts. Uh, it's extraordinary stuff, and and it's you know it's it's hugely rational. And you realize, um, in terms of of recent history, why communism terrified the United States and and the ruling class in Europe and the royal houses of Europe, and Wall Street and big banks. Um, of course it terrified them because, and that's why from day one, the counter revolution was launched and there was an attack against all things communist in Cuba, in, in Venezuela, in Nicaragua. It's why Gaddafi was killed. It's why there's a war in Syria. Any movement to treat people fairly. It's why they led Aristide out of Haiti at gunpoint. You know why? Because he wanted to raise minimum wage. Right. You know, what a crime. Um, you can't you're not allowed to do that. And and uh, and and so that that assault against the Soviet Union went on relentlessly for, you know, sure. however many, many decades. And eventually um, the 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 Soviet Union crumbled from, you know, from this external pressure largely because. Mm and because of a kind of a, an over-industrialization that was born of, of the urge to compete with the West. And so it's a very complicated story, but yeah, I mean, of course. And, and the other thing worth mentioning in light of all of this is again, the inherent racism that runs through um, all of these, these green voices, whether it's Goodall or Prince Charles or Klaus Schwab or any of these horrible, horrible people uh is is there's a hatred uh, what Corey said at the beginning and othering going on 
they they think there's too many Africans. They don't think there's too many of them. They think there's too many Africans, too many Asians, probably too, too many spicks in South America who are all tend toward communism anyway. They'd like to get rid of all of those people. Um, and, and, and that has been true, you know, since, um, since the, the class war began. Um, all right, final thoughts from anybody? Johan, Hiroyuki. Okay, I can just finish by, yeah, what strikes me with this text is that uh, two, two things, that there's this tendency towards uh, the, the local democratic solutions. It's always the, the village or the local community that's, that's finally to, to decide on important matters. And there's this uh, emphasis on redistribution so as to avoid the the emergence of these monolithic institutions, whether it's in, in the form of the state or some form of co-op corporation. But, but there's also an emphasis on the preservation of small property owners, which is, it's really astonishing that this, this has been, you know, swept aside and uh, regarded as uh, totalitarian. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good point. Um, <clears throat> any last thoughts, Varun, Corey, Rob? Hiroyuki. Well, I think it, it totally makes sense that we have this uh, uh, COVID situation, uh, destruction of community um, by the structural pressure and also uh, distrust among us. And, uh, and that's totally go against the force um, Johan just uh, described. It's, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's uh, something we, we should keep in mind in building something better yeah and and varun's comments about kurzweil and stuff i i i you know are are those are are really valid points and and there is a lot that's a, an enormous topic i think the the sort of the pinnacle of uh a, the 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 self-delusion involved in uh in 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 technology i mean that's a really big question though it's an enormous question and and we see this money being you know shoved into research so that your smart phone can be be smarter next week and um as if that were what was really needed in the world you know but 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 they don't care about the world anyone else the smartphone is the the smartphone is the imperial city going back to the architecture <laughs> question yeah yeah i think that's true i'll buy that's a good place to end um uh so okay thank you guys uh how's the squirrel cory i'm good he's gone he or she is gone now okay foraging in the in the forest here <laughs> All right. Well, the rest of us are going to go forage now ourselves. Um, thanks. And, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks always to Jack Littman in LA, who will uh, uh, tighten up this show for us. And um, anyone who has links you want with this, please send them to me. I have a few ideas. This seems like there's perhaps a lot of links we should post to this discussion. Um, all right. Thank you, Johan, Varun, Hiroyuki, Corey, and Rob. Uh, I'll talk to you all soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.